Good to be with you again this morning. I wasn't sure I was in the right place when I first came in this morning. I think I am. You look familiar. Sherry sends her greetings. She's with our daughter-in-law this morning. They're up at uh, Crystal Lake Free Church, which is our home fellowship, and enjoying their time there. But she said, say hi for me. So hi from Sherry. Our text this morning continues in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Here's what we read there. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he said, beware, don't be greedy for what you don't have. Real life is not measured by how much we own. And he gave an illustration. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. In fact, his barns were full to overflowing. So he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll have enough to store everything. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you'll die this very night. Then who will get it all? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Today's teaching comes from a, um, a season in Christ's ministry when he was experiencing great popularity. Now, most of what we're looking at here at this season, this, this portion of Luke, is taking us to the cross. But remember we talked about the fact that Luke doesn't exactly get too excited about chronological patterns. So here what we've got is a theme that's come up in the teaching, in Jesus' teaching, as he heads toward the cross. And Luke just stops and kind of, that reminds him of some things Jesus once taught on this theme. So when he tells us that the crowds were immense, there were great crowds, and we're going to see that in just a moment, we know we're not on that last leg to the cross because by that time, the crowds had pretty well been diminished. They were sensing what was coming and they were pulling back. This teaching comes from an earlier time in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 12, 1, we read, Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and crushing each other. Reminded me of seeing a, a little video clip from Lollapalooza the other day. Crowds just crushing one another at times. And here in our text for today, chapter 12, verse 13, then someone called from the crowd. Imagine now, called from among the thousands. One voice calling out, and Jesus hears it. But Jesus is well aware that while the crowds are increasing in number, many of his followers are, are guilty of shallow understanding uh, or uh, selfish motives. In chapter 12, 1 again, we read, Beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 15, in response to the man who interrupted his teaching, he says, Beware. So Jesus says, I see you, a lot of you out there, but I want you to hear what I'm going to say now. I've got a warning for you because I don't think you're following me on this track toward the cross. 
Literally, his words are, pay attention and guard yourselves. Those are not unfamiliar words coming from our Lord's mouth. Uh, However, many of today's pastors have decided not to issue many warnings. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, People don't like warnings. They sound far too negative. So a lot of preaching today excludes the warnings, but the warnings are important. If you think of it as a parent, you remember that the warnings you gave to your children came out of love, out of concern for them, and thus it is with Jesus. Fortunately, Jesus never flinched from the truth simply because it was inconvenient or worse yet, downright meddlesome. So he doesn't flinch from the truth here on this theme either. In our text for this morning, Jesus' warning is against greed. The Greek text says he was warning them against every kind of greed. Isn't that interesting? And the suggestion is that greed may take many different forms, but it is always contrary to God's will for his people. That being the case, love for his followers forced Jesus to warn them against greed of all kinds. But let's take a deeper look at the text and see what Jesus has to teach us about the problem, the problem of greed. Note first, the greedy man's plan. Verse 13, then someone called out from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Now, the request, as far as we can tell, was a legitimate one especially when we consider that the rabbis and the teachers of Jesus' day often involved themselves in just these kinds of decisions. Not only was the man's request legitimate, but it might be understood as entirely innocent if it weren't for the manner in which Jesus responded to it. He begins by informing the man that he is not among those rabbis. He, Jesus, is not among those rabbis who makes it his business to settle these kinds of matters. Note that he isn't criticizing rabbis who do. He's just saying, this isn't my mission. This isn't why the Father sent me to earth. It's not what I'm here for. But what he says next gives us a window into the man's heart. He says, beware. Now, he says it to the man, and he says it to the multitudes that are listening in. Beware. Don't be greedy for what you don't have. And with those simple, straightforward words, Jesus identifies the real issue facing the man in front of him and the issue that he's about to address in his teaching, which is the problem with greed. And this he does, as is so often the case, by the use of a parable. But before we get into the parable, we should notice the first characteristic of the greedy man's plan, and that's this. He must have his fair share. In this case, his focus is on his inheritance, his uh, fair share of his father's estate. But we can safely assume from Christ's words that um, his attitude on this particular matter was his attitude with regards to nearly all of life. He was no doubt the child who always made sure that his siblings didn't get more cookies than he did. Perhaps his parents thought it was cute then, but it had long since ceased to be cute. Some of you here this morning have a child or a sibling who has persisted in this trait well beyond the cute stage. 
You can give anything or do anything for any one of your children or siblings, but you've got to be careful that Sissy or Junior gets exactly the same as everybody else. They may be 25 or 30 or 50 years old now, and their first response to everything is still, it's not fair. He got more than I did. They'll drive 50 miles to get a government handout worth $25 just to make sure that someone else doesn't get what they didn't get or that they don't get what someone else got. They spend their lives looking for freebies, great deals. Their favorite topic of conversation is about the time someone tried to take advantage of them, but they managed, they managed to get what was coming to them anyhow. In short, the first plank in their plan for life is always this. Make sure you get everything that's coming to you, and if possible, a little bit more. The second trait to be discerned in the greedy man's plan is that he never has enough. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus uh, takes up a parable. We read there, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. In fact, his barns were full to overflowing. It's clear from Christ's words that this man had plenty. His life was full to overflowing. But although he had plenty, he didn't have what? He didn't have enough. This is one of the symptoms of greedy people. They never have enough. Well, you say, what kind of a man can have so much, so much that his, his barns are full, he's, his life is full of plenty, and he still doesn't have enough? What kind of man is that? It's a good question. Let me ask you a question. Who do you know that has enough? Who do you know that has enough? Do you have enough? Do I have enough? If you meet one or two people in your lifetime who really have enough and know that, that'll be one or two more than a lot of us will ever meet. To the best of my knowledge, I've only met two people in my 76 years who had enough on a regular basis. One was my dad. He, um, he rarely had more than he needed to pay the bills, but it was always enough. He didn't drink a 10-ounce Coke because an 8-ounce Coke was enough. He ordered the smaller steak because a four-ounce steak was enough. He never quarreled about weeks of vacation because he found that one week was enough. One of my seminary profs makes the second man I've known who had enough. His name was Dr. Concer. Some of you may have heard him. Some of you may even know him now with the Lord. Uh, some years ago, we were talking over lunch about a number of different items, and he knew that I was pastoring a, a quite affluent church at that time. We are talking about the struggles that the wealthy have making decisions about how they live their lives, what they purchase, what they give, and so forth. He said, you know, some years ago, Ruth, that was his wife, Ruth and I sat down and decided what enough is. And we've been living on enough now for the past 40 years. He said, during that time, the Lord has blessed us many times over. And our income has increased greatly, but we have found that enough is always enough. And that's what we live on. What a stark contrast with the man in our story whose life was full to overflowing, but still never had enough. 
Unfortunately, we don't have to look very far to see similar examples in our own society, do we? I saw a statistic not long ago that said, uh, this, this goes back a few years, but at the time of that particular study, the average CEO in the United States made 41 times the amount that his employees made. 41 times. I thought that's remarkable. And then I continued to look at the study and I learned that 20 years later, those same CEOs made 187 times more than their employees. Apparently, the financially blessed in our own age still suffer from the inability to figure out how much enough is. Nor are they the only ones who struggle with that question. Nearly every one of us in this room struggle with the simple equation, enough equals what? What is it that we'd put on the end of that equation? The closest most of us come to finishing this equation is enough equals just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. We don't need to win the billion-dollar lottery, right? I don't need that. You need that? Think of all the hassle, all the problems. I was going to tell you this morning that they're still waiting on that, but they aren't. They think somebody out there, they said they don't know who it is, but somebody now, they know, won the $1.3 billion. I hope he has enough and doesn't need just a little bit more, don't you? We don't even need an extra 20000 a year. Not really. Most of us. We, we just need enough. And how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Having explored what enough means for most of us, it's only fair to point out that the truly greedy never aspire to just a little bit more. As we're about to see, their drive is to get as much as they possibly can. And that leads us to the third trait of a greedy man and his plans for the future. And that's this. He's always planning for more and more. Verse 18. He said to himself, I know... I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll have room to store everything. I got to confess that when I read this verse during my study time this week, I was struck by the closing phrase, then I'll have room to store everything. I remember that during our 24 years in Deerfield, Illinois, Sherry and I and our two sons lived in an 1,100 square foot house with another couple hundred feet of unfinished basement beneath us and a one-car garage. I don't think it was even a one-car garage. I had to squeeze the car in with a shoehorn. But that's where we lived for those years. We, uh, we got along just fine, except for the recurring problem of trying to find space to store things. Have you ever had that problem? When we left Deerfield, we were determined to find a place with more space to entertain and, of course, more space to store things. So we moved west until we got to Elgin, where we found a townhouse with more than double our previous square footage. Everybody else was downsizing. We were upsizing. We had more square foot, two times the square footage, and we had a two-car garage. At last, we said, room to store things. Guess what? You know where this is going, don't you? About a year into our time there, a funny thing happened, and that was, and by the way, it's continued over the 14 years we've been there now, we keep running out of space to store things. 
Sherry and I are both mystified by this because one of our primary goals over the past 14 years has been to downsize. We've gone from two cars to one. I've gotten rid of almost half my library. Uh, we've given away several sizable pieces of furniture. In all that time, neither Sherry nor I will admit to have made any major purchases for the household that weren't absolutely necessary. And yet, we don't have space. As surely as Jesus multiplied a few loaves and fishes and got enough to feed a multitude... Sherry and I have somehow multiplied a mere handful of household items and filled hundreds of square feet, feet of empty space, and all without even trying. And we're still looking for space to store things. No doubt more than a few of you have experienced this miraculous phenomenon in your own lives. But the man in Jesus' parable had a different kind of problem. The idea of downsizing, of learning to do with less, was the furthest thing from his mind. His conscious plan was always more and more. And as we've already seen, he had no concept of enough, with the result that he was constantly striving and, and scheming and, and drafting plans for more and more, bigger and bigger. Notice there's not so much as a hint that the more he sought was in any way illicit or illegal or downright sinful stuff. As far as we know, it was just more grain, more wheat, more corn, more flax, more oats, and the things he could buy with that produce. What could be wrong with that, you say? Is it possible that Jesus has just opened the possibility that one may be greedy for good things? That a fixation on more and more and more, even more of a good thing, can fall under the classification of greed? Is that possible? Certainly, uh, you've crossed paths with someone like this in your lifetime, I'm sure, by now. They become so preoccupied, so enamored with the business of more and more. They are so busy planning how to get it and where to store it. And when they do get it, uh, they have no time for people any longer, not even their own families. And they are rarely seen at church these days. Every blank piece of paper that crosses his or her desk, every napkin placed in front of them in a meal, every blank computer screen becomes a, an opportunity for that individual to sketch one more plan to increase their holdings. Such is the way of the good but greedy man or woman. There's still one more trait of the greed revealed in our Lord's parable, and, and that's this. His objective, the objective of the greedy, is his own enjoyment. Verse 19, I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend or myself, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, self. Eat, drink, and be merry, self. It needs to be pointed out that the object of the greedy varies from person to person. I said the object of the greedy varies from person to person. Verse 15 in the Greek says, be careful of every kind of greed. 
There are different kinds of greed. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but some people are greedy for the money itself. It's kind of the classic picture we have in our minds of somebody sitting around with coins, counting their coins. You know, we don't have coins anymore, but whatever, whatever it is you count, you have piles of it around you, and you just enjoy counting it, throwing it up in the air and watching it come down. That's one form of greed. There are very few people who are really greedy for money in that sense. Others are greedy for the process, the wheeling and the dealing. They love it. They're addicted to it and can't stay away from it. For still others, it's the acclaim that comes with success in the financial world or the prestige or the position. For 17 years, Sherry worked as a household uh, what? administrator for a very well-to-do family on the North Shore. And I'll just tell you, this is a broad category. They counted their money in tens of millions, but they had a problem. The gang they ran with were people who counted their money in hundreds of millions and billions. And so they were constantly running behind them. And Sherry more than once would call me from, from her house. I'd be at the office, and she'd say, what do I do now? And I'd say, what do you mean, what do you do now? She said, the, the, the electric company's out here to shut off the electric. The water company's here to shut off the water. I said, you're kidding me. No, no, she said. These folks are, are on a trip somewhere in Italy. They're going to be there for three weeks, and they can't afford to pay Peter as long as they're paying Paul. And in order to stay and be a part of the jet set that they're part of, you can't say no to them. If they say we're going to Italy for three weeks, you've got to go to Italy for three weeks, whether you can pay for your electric or not. They were the poorest rich people you'll ever find on earth. Some people, some people are greedy for acclaim, prestige, position. Some are Greedy for freedom. They just want to be able to do what they want to be able to do when they want to do it. They're addicted to power. They're greedy for power. Yet others are, are, greedy, are, are greedy as the man in this story, I think, for security and comfort and luxury. He says, I'll just say to myself, take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. Nothing complicated about this guy. But for all of these folks alike, without exception, it's for their own personal enjoyment, whatever that may be, that they're greedy. So in verses 18 and 19 alone, the man in this parable uses the personal pronouns I or my 11 times. doesn't come through in the English, but about every other word is my. He says, you know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll eat my food and, and drink and, and I'll be merry, self. He calls, speaks to himself, and he says, self, you've got enough stored away for a lot of years to come, self. It's all about him. There is little or no time in his life for God or for others. He doesn't even think of others. For the greedy, the quest for more is always a very self-searching, a self-centered venture. And in their quest for more and more, others become viewed only as a means to their ends. And look out. Look out if you're in the way when they decide that you've accomplished their purpose for you because you'll pretty soon be without a job. That is your job, as far as they're concerned, to advance their wealth. Now, before we move on to examine Jesus' warning against greed, I want to sum up our observations about greed as it's portrayed here in this passage. First, we should in all fairness admit that 
the greedy are not always the monsters we make them out to be. You ever thought about that? Some years ago, I came across a news release from Pompano Beach, Florida. According to this article, a certain Christopher Morris, I want to get this right, plotted with his parents to kill his ex-wife in order to collect on her $35,000 insurance policy. What Christopher hadn't looked into was that his wife's policy had lapsed. When he told his parents that, they had a solution. They just killed him for the $70,000 policy that he had on his life. Now that's greed. But the picture of greed painted by our Lord in the parable before us isn't anything like that, is it? The subject of Christ's parable is a respectable citizen making his living as a farmer. What more valuable, worthy occupation could you have than that? And he's a successful farmer at that. As the story goes, he wants nothing more than he says his fair share. And who among us doesn't want our fair share? I do. When he experiences a little success, he's quick to demonstrate the traits of a good steward. He assesses his need for greater storage. He develops a plan for even greater growth. He takes into account the possibility of a rainy day, and he plots a course calculated to provide a lifetime of comfort for as long as he could possibly need. It's true, his plans don't do much to take others into account. But then we might reason he has a right to look after number one. After all, he's been a model of business business savvy and capitalistic know-how. He's earned, hasn't he? He's earned a retirement characterized by ease. Truth be told, this guy could be a respected member of most of our evangelical churches. But that's part of what troubles me, only part of it because this guy looks and acts an awful lot like a wise steward. And as a matter of fact, in some ways he looks a lot like me. Except for the success he's experienced in financial matters. And that's exactly why Jesus' warning against this kind of respectable greed is so very important for us to pay attention to. All of which leads us to the second main consideration for this morning, which is Jesus' warning against greed. You recall that this warning against greed actually preceded the parable. Back in verse 15, before he even tells the parable, as he's just heard from this man in the audience, his response to him is he says to him, Hey, brother, beware. Don't be greedy for what you don't have. Bible scholar Leon Morris tells us that Jesus' warning here, his warning against greed, is set in the strongest possible language of his day. It is two imperatives placed side by side. It says, take heed, listen to me. And then it adds, guard yourselves. And the idea is not a defensive guarding. The idea is action. Do whatever you have to do to protect yourself against this kind of respectable greed. Morris says, beware hardly does justice to the force of Jesus' words. 
Why such an unusually strong warning against greed? I believe, I believe it's because of something we've already looked at, namely the subtle, the insidious nature of greed, its ability to mask itself as good stewardship, respectability, even the result of God's blessing on our hard efforts. Look out, says Jesus. Take a positive, proactive stance against the insidious nature of this enemy. Not only is it sneaky, by the way, it's also internal. It's not like so many of our other enemies that we face. No, it's inside us. It's in our head. It's in our hearts. It's in our ambition. It's in our wants. With the result that it will require a strong and constant effort to overcome it long term. And yet I wonder how many of us has ever prayed even once, how many of us has ever prayed even once against the power of this enemy in our lives, in our hearts? Well, you say, what's the content? What's the content of Jesus' warning against greed? Let's take a look at that. The first of these specifics in, in, in the content of his, his warning is this. He tells us real life isn't measured by how much we have. And by using the term real before life, the New Living Translators hope that we'll stop to notice that Jesus is distinguishing between bios, that is, life in our everyday experience of it, and zoe, the eternal principle given to every man by his creator. By the way, it's zoe that Jesus uses here. Real life, he says, can't be measured by how much you own. What's the actual difference between these two expressions of life. Let me explain it this way. Um, as I mentioned already, last night on the news, we found that um, somebody out there is $1.3 billion richer than they were the day before. Almost immediately, his or her bias, day-to-day -day experience of life, will change drastically, whether they wanted to or not, by the way. It's next to impossible to even imagine the upgrades that he or she will of necessity experience. We all know this will be so, and Jesus knew it would be so, and he didn't deny that. What he is telling us is this. No amount of money, no amount of possessions can change even in the slightest degree the value, the purpose, or the eternal principle of a man or woman's zoe, his real life, his real value his eternal being. Lenski, in his commentary, says that man will not have a bit more real life when he has much or a less real life when he has little. To have real life, man must look to something else other than abundance or excess. Everything and everybody in the world around us keeps telling us that um, the way to importance and meaning and enjoyment in this life is by the accumulation of more and more of this world's resources. And Jesus doesn't deny for a moment that the world may treat you differently if you have great wealth. But he insists that the real value, the real direction, the real meaning of life is not increased even a little bit by wealth. In other words, greed, even when it results in giving us what we hope for, does nothing to increase the value and the meaning of life. Usually, not even the happiness we look for. 
A second specific bit of content in Jesus' warning against greed, and one that we've really already touched on, is this. Greed may look like good stewardship, but it's actually selfishness. As we've already seen, there are several ways in which greed may appear as good stewardship. First, it takes great care to invest wisely for the future. That's good stewardship, isn't it? Second, it realizes profit, which may be read, may be read as God's blessing. That happens a lot, even in our culture. We say, oh, the Lord must really be blessing. Look how well he's doing. And then again, it may be the practice of one who appears on the surface to be an upstanding, even a righteous person. It can look that way. But on one very important point, it completely fails. It takes into account neither God nor others. Oh, it may throw a few crumbs to the poor from time to time, especially if it makes them look more respectable. And it, um, it may on occasion uh, get a gaudy, a showy gift for the church, but that's about it. At the end of the day, it's all about self. So it's no mistake that the rich man's soliloquy in verses 18 and 19 has no less than 11 personal pronouns and ends with this counsel given by himself to himself. Okay, he says, I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, self, you have enough stored away for yourself for years to come. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you hear yourself? That's pretty much the way it reads in the Greek. There's still one more specific aspect to Christ's warning against greed, and this is his bottom line. He tells us, in the end, all greed shows itself to be foolish. Verses 20 and 21. But God said to him, now apparently what's happening, this, we're, still in the, we're still in the parable, so Jesus is saying, this man who has said, you know, here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to have all this stuff, and I'm going to take care of myself, and boy, am I going to have a great life, and the longer I live, the better it's going to get, because I'm going to make sure I have enough. And Jesus says, but God said to him, apparently in a dream at night, however it came to him, and God said to him, you fool. You ever think God doesn't mince words, right? He said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. And then who will get it all? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. I find it somewhat surprising that Jesus chooses to address the man and assess him as foolish based on his own reasoning. That is based on the man's reasoning rather than heaven's reasoning. Namely, the man's reasoning was that, that he was in control of his future and he could with full confidence assert that he would be around to enjoy his wealth. Most of us, if we heard that argument, myself included, would, would have launched into a theological excursus on the dangers, uh, the dangers of, of, uh, of making it big in this life only to die and go out into a godless eternity. And that would be a true teaching. Jesus, on the other hand, points out the foolishness not so much in the man's theology as in his practical reasoning. He acts and plans. Jesus says, you're acting and planning as though you're in control of the future. And God points out to him, he's not. You're a fool, he says. You don't have control over this. It's as though you had a dream in the middle of the night and you wake up in a cold sweat because you heard God saying to you, stupid. Hey, stupid, listen to me. 
even on human grounds, your reasoning falls flat. I'll never forget. I've shared this here before, but it fits so well. During my seminary days, I had a, a, a theological professor who loved to get down to the nitty-gritty and, and just kind of talk with us at the level we lived at. So we'd be talking up here in these theological terms, and he'd just kind of step back. One day he stepped back, and we thought, oh, here it comes. He said, gentlemen, you keep waiting for sin to get smart. Let me tell you something. Sin is not smart. Sin is never smart. Sin is stupid. And then, just to make his point, God adds, this very night. And you know, it's beautiful because that's the way he starts the sentence. This guy's talking about, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and then my life will be so wonderful. And God says, this very night. I'm not giving you five years. I'm not giving you ten years. I'm not giving you a minute this very night. Placed at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. This night your soul will be required of you. You will die. And oh, by the way, who's going to get it all? So much for your foolish plans. Closing words. Jesus says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. But not, literally, the text says, be rich toward God. Uncle Henry was, um, was one of my dad's uh, family, the one in my dad's family, who showed any aptitude for handling money. And though he was laughed at and hated by most people who knew him, he always thought of himself as a respectable Christian businessman. He rented space in the local arcade in Canton, Ohio, where he sold farm goods. He would drive down into Holmes County and the Amish country. He would um, look for and buy seconds of all kinds of produce at a good price, and he'd bring it back and polish it up and sell it as though it were something more than it was. And over the years doing that, he amassed a, a storehouse of money. He purchased the dream house that he'd always wanted on the lake. He got himself a Cadillac, the car of his dreams. He took annual trips to Florida, and, well, that's just the beginning. But, you know, he never enjoyed any of it. I remember when he got his Cadillac, and uh, my dad, I was with my dad, I was just a little guy, and I still hear, hear my dad saying to him, well, Uncle Hen, how, what, what, you enjoying your Cadillac? Ah, buddy, he said, Gianni, putting your foot on the gas pedals like flushing the toilet. Well, imagine today with the prices. He was paying for cheap gas then. Imagine how he would have felt about it today. Took trips to Florida, always came back. How was the weather, Uncle Hen? Terrible. Never enjoyed that. No, no, I'm never going to go back there again. In his latter years, he decided to make a one-time gift of an organ, a pipe organ, to his church. Then he tried to take back his promise when he realized how much it was going to cost. When he died, everyone wondered who he'd leave his wealth to. He had no children. He had no friends. His wife had preceded him in death. I never did find out 
who got the old man's goods? Probably Uncle Sam. Though he lived a long life, he never lived to enjoy all his greed had purchased him. Uncle Hen was the classic fool, I'm sad to say, as described by our Lord in our parable for today. Unfortunately, he was far from alone. We have plenty such fools today. But I got to confess to you, I'm far more concerned about the pockets of greed that exist in our own lives, yours and mine. Because you see, greed is so insidious. It's not just a disease of the very, very, very wealthy or the very, very, very nasty. It is so easily confused or hidden behind our efforts to be good stewards and to be prepared for every possible contingency. It wasn't that many years ago that I stepped back from a ministry in Deerfield, and I remember uh, for the first time in my life, I thought, I better sit down with a financial planner and find out what's ahead of me now. I was probably foolish to wait that long, but I did. So I found a good Christian financial counselor. I sat down with him, and I said, what am I going to need for the future? And he named a number with the word millions on the end of it, and I gasped. And it wasn't one million either. Now, I'm not saying he was greedy. I'm not saying that the thought or the idea of, of planning for the future is wrong. I'm just saying that it is so possible for us, and particularly in today's world where we say, well, you don't know what inflation might do. You know, dollar's not worth what it used to be. Taxes are going crazy. You just can't have enough for yourself out there in the future. You think I don't wrestle with that? You think we don't wrestle with that, Christian? We do. As I read the epistles of the New Testament, I notice that the Apostle Paul was likewise concerned about the existence of greed inside the church. I'm sure he wrestled with it in his own life, just like we all do. In his time, it was different. And still, it's a human issue. And so I want to close this morning as Paul himself closed his first letter to Timothy and the church in Ephesus with some positive but probing words for us to consider as Christians in this matter of finances. Writing to young Timothy in the church in Ephesus, he says, tell those who are rich in this world, you've heard it before, but that is us, right? Tell those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon enough be gone. But their trust should be in the living God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and should give generously to those in need, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of, here it is, Zoe, real life. Spirit of God, we need wisdom. Our hearts are to be generous and open. You've given us that heart. We have your characteristics in us. You're a giving and a gracious God, so we have some of that DNA in us. But Lord, we struggle. We struggle in these days to stay generous 
and to avoid this characteristic of greed that so easily and so insidiously works its way into our lives. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, grant us faith for the future, and grant us generous hearts that we may develop a relationship with you and with others that will last and have value for all eternity. Amen.